That shit was killing me. Yeah. All right? Because you know what it is? I took his talent away from him. Um, he beat these boys. He beat Kappa and he beat Martin just being a regular boxer. I took his gift away from him. Um, and I figured it out because I saw him, like, you know, sparring with different guys. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? I started, oh, wait a minute. That's what's going on. You know what I'm saying? Because what it is with my son, he's, uh, he's like a counterpart. He reads guys. You know what I'm saying? You, you ever seen his eyes? Like, when so you took the away. I took all that shit away. You know? So, in other words, like, the fighter, you couldn't see what the other fighter was going to do. Yeah. Because he's thinking about, and welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where boxing fans just can't decide are they about the sport or are they not about the sport? And the reason I say that is people have turned on Josh Taylor pretty quick. There was a time when Josh was the darling of, of British boxing. We used to call him the one guy who was credible on a global level. Like he was accepted as one of the best Brits we've produced. And we were, all, we were asking these questions like, how was this guy overlooked by all the mainline promoters? All of these things. We were praising Cyclone. We were praising Shane. We praised everyone for how Josh turned out. And then after he loses to Teofimo Lopez, everyone kind of says, ah, was he really that good to begin with? It truly is a sport of feast and famine, and it's a really strange one because I think unlike most mainstream sports, maybe with the exception of cricket, most people that watch football have tried football. Most people that watch rugby have tried it. Even if it's just in PE, you've tried it, you've felt the ball, you understand, right? Cricket, less so because you need a lot of physical assets, like grass and a lot of it, in order to, to execute. Whereas boxing's a sport where millions of people will watch it and like less than 1% would have laced a pair of gloves on. So everyone else is kind of just, they're critiquing a sport as fans, but they want to be considered experts, which they're not. You can't be. I mean, experts requires you have some kind of expertise in the sport. You don't, expertise can't constitute, I just watch a lot of it, therefore I'm an expert. That's not cutting it. Like, but, you know, you can't knock fans. Fans are who they are. You just learn to to discount a lot of what's said. And I think a lot of what's said about Josh Taylor is, is miles off the mark, to be honest. So let's set the scene for the fight. You've got two guys. You've got Josh and you've got Teofimo Lopez. And both guys are looking for redemption. Um, since since Teofimo Lopez had defeated Lomachenko, his career just been stop-start. It's almost like, and I think I said this in a previous episode, sometimes you get to the top of the mountain and you realize you weren't ready for that. And I think Teofimo Lopez had that. And so you saw the defeat to Cambosas, and I know there's the illness 
explanation for that, and that's fine. And then a couple of middling performances, and you know, one of them against Sandro Martin, which was less than impressive. So we were like, uh, is he done at 25? Flip over to Josh Taylor, a man who, remember, not that long ago, was undisputed in the weight class and was undisputed with a run that people generally accepted to be worthy of being undisputed because who, just some of the names he beat, Victor Postal, um, he beat Progre, and he beat Ramirez. It's a pretty decent way to unify. And he'd been on a run, and remember, like he hasn't had that many fights, so he'd had a career of no filler. When you look at his record, the number of undefeated fighters that Josh Taylor's taken on is ridiculous. His record's not padded. So no one questioned his, his undisputed run. No chance. It was deserved. So you've got two guys who have had a couple of rocky performances in the eyes of the fans. And so these two meet. And not necessarily that it's a crossroads fight, but it's a, it's a redemption and validation fight for one of them. Whoever wins this is back at that top table comfortably. So there's a lot of pressure going into this. Um, there was some erratic Teofimo Lopez behavior. Um, you know, Josh was his usual self where he's got to create the enemy in his own mind and he's deliberately antagonistic because that's kind of what gets the best out of him and that's how he gets in the head of his opponent, right? And I remember saying at the time, I thought Josh might make Teo quit. I said that in the previous episode. Sometimes you've got to hold your, your predictions and you've got to just swallow that. And I do. Like it was, <laughs> you know, someone's going to remind me of that anyway. So I thought, let me, let, me, let me just take it on the chin now. But here's the thing. At a time when we can't get Joshua to jump in with Dillian, at a time when we can't get Fury to jump in with Usyk, at a time where we can't get a dance partner for Deontay Wilder this summer, at a time when we can't get Baturbiev and Bivol in the ring, at a time where we can't get Canelo to rematch Bivol, at a time where we have to talk about Canelo fighting Badu Jack. Boxing gave us Teofimo versus Josh Taylor, and still we complained. Why? When, when the top-tier guys fight each other, someone has to lose. And that shouldn't mean you go from being a top-tier guy to... Uh, he was never any good to begin with. It should just be, look, when the top guys fight each other, someone drops down a little bit, then they rebuild and get back up there. That should be the message from the Josh Taylor versus Teofimo Lopez fight. Two top guys with a lot to prove jumped in there and fought. And I'm going to go into the fight in a second, but let's be absolutely clear. Whatever you think that fight was, 7-5, 8-4, 9-3, there weren't many points in that fight where you could say Teofimo Lopez was comfortable. He was good. Oh, from start to finish, he was good. He was incredible. But he wasn't comfortable. That wasn't a walk in the park. And I hope people acknowledge that when it's all said and done. And they go, listen, Josh was in every one of those rounds. He just wasn't doing enough to take those rounds. But he was in the conversation. And... At the top level, that's all you could ask for, right? You just ask for these fights to be competitive. But the core of this fight was always going to be the, the classic dilemma of a counterpuncher versus a counterpuncher. And who could get the other guy to trigger off? 
Because as much as Josh is known for hurting guys and bullying guys and taking them out, it's normally after he's got them to open up. And that's normally with his feints, um, his jab, and he gets you to open up and bite. And then once he does that, he normally lets flurries off. And so this is what we were expecting, right? We were expecting a Josh Taylor performance, which is feint that jab. As soon as they bite on the feint, you shovel that left hand into the body, come over the top of that right hook, then another left hook to the head. You know, classic Josh Taylor combinations. That's what we were hoping for. And I think for Teo, the question was, could he get Josh to, to open up? Could he get Josh to be heavy-footed so he could come around the sides and throw those hooks and uppercuts? And it was always going to be that kind of that chess match. And there was a risk that it could have nullified itself. But knowing the personalities involved, both guys are quite headstrong. So at some point, they were going to make this fight entertaining. And, and entertaining it was. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this fight. So come fight night, the first thing you noticed was Taylor looked good as a junior welterweight. He, what's he, 5'8"? Five 5'8", eight? Five eight, landed on 140, looked good at the weight. Just He looked like he should be in that weight class. Josh just looked like a... How'd you put it? He looked like an upgraded version of Boy Jones Jr. Just kind of guy that you look at, you go, I think you're a bit too tall for that weight class. Now, I can't say I've always felt that because that's not true. But when you're looking at a guy in his 30s, you're like, I don't know if you should be in that weight class. And, and any number of reasons. One, you're quite long and quite thin. So how are you able to take some of those shots? Mm, what's the effect of those? Because, you know, there's a... What's the powerlifting adage? Mass moves mass, right? And I say, actually, mass and density in boxing absorb shots. And tail was head close to the shoulders, um, solid from top to bottom, and you could see he was a guy that could take a shot. And so just looking at them physically, you know, Teo looked far more comfortable than there. And one of the things we ignore is Teofimo Lopez's athleticism. There was a bit in fight week, um, God, let me come back to the Taylor warm-up in a second. There's a bit in fight week where Teofimo Lopez does a standing back, it's a back flip or back somersault. Um, definitely the tuck one, so I think it's a somersault. He does it from a standing start, no run-up, no momentum, just does it. And it was the height that he was able to get, so he was able to rotate fully in the air, and then his legs could straighten well before he was due to land. And I saw that and I just said, yeah. That's a lot of fast twitch fibers in that guy. And I think that was the theme of him in the fight where everything was just quick, punchy, sharp. You know, if I was Matt Mackin, I'd call it herky-jerky, but it wasn't herky, it wasn't jerky. But just to come back to take, I don't know if anyone saw this, right? And I'm sure there's a video clip of this on the top rank social media play, page is. As Taylor's warming up, He's doing his little footwork, he's, he's shuffling about, he's having a bit of fun, and he starts to pivot. But as he's pivoting, his lead foot doesn't go left and it doesn't go right. So he's pivoting about the same point. And I was watching this going, your head is still there to be hit. Which I found weird. I was like, but you're an elite level boxer. You know that the point of a pivot is to create some kind of different position. Definitely for your head, so you don't get hit. And when I watched it, I said, uh, uh, this, that's not a good sign. 
if he doesn't understand how to pivot, this is not a good sign. He looked undercooked in the warm-up as well. It's just my opinion on it. I think he's probably that guy that needs to be right on the limit from the first bell. And he didn't look that way. But we'll come on to the fight in a second. I just wanted to point that out because I remember that, that image of him doing that in front of the camera. And it didn't look particularly good to me. So I think it's easiest to break the fight down into, into thirds. Because that's kind of how the fight seemed to evolve. So there's the first third. Which was KG, edgy, entertaining, actually quite compelling. And it was two guys at the top of their game. Then there's a the middle third, which I call kind of the aha moment. Where Teo did all the right calculations and suddenly realized that this fight was winnable if he did a few things differently. Then there's the, 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 the final third. And that was kind of the, the redemption. I think Teo knew he had the fight comfortably in the bag. I think Josh knew he was in there with someone who was just a little bit too cute for him. And then it was almost, I need to look like I'm being valiant in defeat. And Taylor was, man, this feels good again. But that, that first third for me was pretty interesting because what you saw was, you saw Josh being Josh. You know, the, the kind of, how do you describe how he, he shoots his jab? Because it's not really a feint. It's kind of just like a, like a double pump or triple pump with his jab. He just kind of just gets it there in the hope that someone reacts to it. And it's worked. Against a lot of people, it's worked, especially people who are intimidated by Josh. But Teo wasn't. So Teofimo Lopez is like, mm, okay, seen this before, comfortable. And what you were seeing was, was Teo was coming back with stuff just to let Josh know the fight was real. He had to let him know. That first round especially was compelling because they were both giving those subtle signals to each other that it's like, look, we can box or we can fight. The choice is up to you tonight. And there was an interesting point at the end of the first round. I'm not sure if you guys remember it. Um, they've, they've ended up in a clinch. The ref's broken them apart. And as soon as it's time to box on, Tails steamed in with a, just a heavy right hand to Josh Taylor's body. It was the last punch of the first round. And it was a statement that said, I'm not a blown up lightweight. And I thought that was a really interesting point because Josh didn't react. He kind of just accepted it like, hmm. Because in that first round, what you'd seen was Taylor just making small, small adjustments, which would prove telling us the fight moved on. Because what Josh likes to do is plant his feet, sort of go, let's have it, right? But Teo will just make these small shifts in foot position, in body position, in head position. It might be an inch here or there. And if you're not concentrating, then it looks like he might still be roughly in the same area. And he was making these small adjustments, and he'd faint, and he'd dip, and he'd just have a look to see what shape Josh gave him. Because Josh Taylor can be confusing to a boxer, because he sets up like a... Like a classic southpaw, right? Everything about him, his feet, his angles. He sets up like a classic southpaw, but doesn't box like one. So, for example, Josh Taylor doesn't have a good straight right. Straight left, sorry. But he's got that overhand left, that kind of cuffing hook left. He's got, all of, he's got every left hand apart from the dead straight one, like a Tava or winky right straight punch. He hasn't got that. That's not in his arsenal. And so... The first round, you can see Teo going, 
you feel like a conventional southpaw, but you're not giving me those sorts of punches. Let me let me investigate further and see what I can find. And round after round, you saw Teo do that. Let me see what these shots are. Let me see if I can take them. The last thing I want to say, just in that first round, the intensity that Teofimo Lopez has in his eyes. If you ever notice, and I, I like this in boxers, Javante Davis is, is equally adept at this. Their heads don't move when they don't need to. But what happens, their eyes lock in on you. Their eyes lock in on you. Almost it's like a heat-seeking missile. There's nowhere you can go where those eyes aren't going to go with you. And where the eyes go, their head goes. So they're just looking at it. They're taking in all this information. It's that intensity that Josh didn't have. Josh was a bit looser in the head and the neck. Because he wasn't, maybe he wasn't in that zone that Teo was, where it's do or die. This is, this is it for me. I have to make this happen. I just thought that contrast was really interesting. But, but some of the themes of that, that first third were, one, it was competitive enough, right? It was competitive enough to show that in the right circumstances, these guys can be pretty well matched, right? Fight 100 times, one wins 40, one's been 60. You'd watch that. But it also showed that Josh Taylor can't handle going backwards. There's no, nothing comes from Josh Taylor when he goes backwards. Nothing. He's a guy that has to be on the front foot, but... Even though he was trying to be on the front foot, he wasn't jabbing with authority. It was flicking. He wasn't able to do the damage with his jab that you'd like to be able to do. And it's not like Teo was miles out of range. Josh just couldn't do it. And in the early part of the fight, yes, there were some combinations, but it all felt a bit samey and also a bit one-paced. And you're like, at some point, Teofimo Lopez is going to figure this out. He has to. He's that level of guy that he has to figure this out. And so as you're watching it, and you're listening to Joe McAnally in the corner, and he's giving all the right advice, like, you've got to be first, then you just got to let your hands go. All the right advice. But maybe Teo was just giving Josh an image, a view, that looked right but didn't feel right. And so Josh was hesitant because those counters were coming quick. They were just coming out of nowhere. And so you start to see this as, now, now Tails like, okay, I know what's coming. Josh is very left-hand happy at this point. You're not seeing a lot of right hands. But you're not seeing a lot of straight lefts. So Teofimo Lopez, by the end of the third round going into the fourth, he's now starting to position himself just inside of Josh Taylor's left shoulder, knowing that Josh has to come round him to hit him, but he can go straight through and hit him in the face with straight rights or right uppercuts. It was that positioning that was the difference between those two in the fight. Because up until this point, punch stats, punch numbers, they're kind of ballparky, right? They're roughly there. It was that ability of Teofimo Lopez to stand inside of Josh Taylor's left hand, knowing that he was going to throw his right, and he was always going to get there before Josh. And what should have happened at that point was Josh should have been thinking more with his right hand to clear that space. But he wasn't. He was so determined to land those lefts, and then he kept doubling down. There was a point in the third round that I don't know if I agree with it, right? They go to touch gloves, and as soon as they touch gloves, Josh just smacks him in the face. Um, good gamesmanship and good understanding of the rules, but a bit judicy for my liking. You know, not my sort of thing. But maybe that pointed to Josh Taylor's frustration that he couldn't impose himself on Teofimo Lopez. Credit where credit's due. That's a hard thing to do, you know. So then, by the end of this first third, it's competitive, but you've got the impression Taylor's now figured out the positioning. 
and I've talked about Teofimo Lopez before in this context, haven't I? I look at Devin Haney. I think Devin Haney's brilliant at managing distance. When he's fully fit and sharp in the first half of a fight, Devin Haney manages distance better than most, if not better than anyone apart from Crawford. Teo doesn't necessarily do that, but he manages his position. So if Teo's in range, his position is such that it's advantageous for him to be in range, not the other guy. I think that's really smart. And so if those two were to ever fight, that's going to be the interesting contrast of who can impose their ideology on the other one. Will Teo be able to impose that positional generalship or will Devin be able to keep him at bay with distance control? That's, if that fight happens, that's going to be the fascinating subplot. So first third of the fight, that's where you're at. It's about the positioning. Where are you? Where are your feet? What can Josh realistically hit you with? Not much. You're going to see it coming because you're right in the eye of the storm. Not only that, but you're kind of inside Josh's optimum punching range as well. So you're not going to get hit with full power unless Josh goes backwards and Josh Taylor doesn't like going backwards. So this is everything that's happened in the first four rounds. And you're looking at it going, the momentum is definitely shifting towards Teofimo Lopez. And then you get the middle rounds, the middle three rounds, which I call the, the aha moment, where Teo's like, I've got him. So the middle part of the fight now, Lopez is like, I've got this. And you see him commit more to his shots. There's more bite in the shots. There's more intent in the shots. He's now trying to establish control. Now, he's not a volume puncher. He's not a combination puncher. That's just not who he is. He'll catch you, though. At some point, he'll catch you. And you can see that. So if you remember round five, I think it was Joe McAnally was like, he's got you on the positioning. You've got to start changing your position. So he's saying to Josh, you've got to start going back to your right-hand side. Because you're giving up a lot of territory here and you're giving up opportunity to Teofimo Lopez. And he was like, look, you've got to use your right hand. You've got to punch in combinations. But psychologically, Josh was locked in on this idea that it's the left hand that's going to be the difference maker in the fight. But Lopez has shown him repeatedly it's not going to happen. You throw that left, you're going to get countered. I can, I'm, I can counter under it. I can counter over it. I can counter inside it, whichever way you want to play this. And I've got a left hook to come after that. But yeah, the, the middle four, like you start to see signs of distress in Josh Taylor. Um, so I'm switching to orthodox. Anything to try and just get a foothold in the fight. And that's what, so if you look at Taylor, Taylor's trying to pull away. Josh is like, I just need a foothold. I need to hit him and have him wobble. And Taylor gave him nothing. You know, I, think, I think we will look back at some of these moments and, and the Lomachenko fight and go, Teofimo Lopez's movement and his head positioning and all this and his defense in general is underrated. His cross-handed block's not amazing, but you can see he's working on it. But those middle rounds were where Tail kind of said, yeah, I'm back on form now. And what anchored it was a point at the end of round eight. Might have been with about 20 seconds to go. And you can see Josh is like, right, I need to make an impact here because I'm definitely down. If I'm not 6-2 down, I'm 5-3 down for sure. And so Josh has a massive left hand and a massive right hand that tail just avoids easily, almost, almost as if it's a sparring session. And I'll put the video up on Twitter anyway. Taylor drops his hands. His face drops. You can just see everything, all the hope of winning has just fallen out of him. It's gone through his boots, through the floor, down into the subway. 
And he's gone, Jesus. And you can see, he's like, is this guy really that much better than me? What is wrong with me? And then it dawns on him that the round's not over. And then he gets his hands up, but he's so demoralized, he can't pull himself together. He takes a few shots heading into the end of that round. And I remember watching that, and with my trainer's head on, I was like, that's done. It's done. Because as a trainer, you look for that. I'm looking for the sign that someone's like, I can't do this. Because sometimes the box in the ring doesn't see it because they don't see that wider context. But you can see it easily on TV. It was like, wow, that's, that's him done. I think McAnally saw that as well. And then all you're doing at that point is you're just trying to motivate, trying to find something in your boxer. But it's rare you get to see that play out so clearly. Like, there are many times in a fight you've seen it. Uh, Mike Tyson against the next Lewis, you see it where Mike's like, I don't want to be here. Mike versus Evander, you've seen him, it's like, I don't want to be here. Uh, Canelo versus Mayweather, I don't want to be here. You see it a lot, but it's rare that it's so pronounced. And I think it's because it was quite a low output fight that everything took on more significance because you had time to ingest a lot more. And so by the end of that second third, you go on social media, you can see Taylor's got this. Like Josh needs knockouts at this point. I think even he knew that. But now this is just a face-saving exercise from this point on. The last four rounds are a face-saving exercise, hoping for a Hail Mary. So if you think about the last four rounds and what Josh has to do to, to win, right? If you think about that, if you're advising him, and you can be a coach, you can be a fighter, you can be a fan. If you're advising Josh, at some point you would have said, Josh, you might want to keep it long. Yeah? Jabs, one-twos, one-two hooks, but, but manage that distance. And then it dawns on you that never in Josh Taylor's career have you seen him box long or manage distance or do all the things a tall, rangy southpaw should do. You've never seen him do that. Even though he's got a kickboxing background, Josh isn't a really an in-and-out sort of guy. He's a come forward, blast you out the way, break you down, grind you down, dominate you physically, break you mentally and hopefully stop you. If not, he's crushed your spirit to such an extent you don't even want to fight him anymore. So when Teo showed that he was ready for that fight and he was better at it, Josh didn't have that other option of switching to boxing long. Because if you were going to do the single shot thing, you could have done that at range. You could have picked him off. But you don't have a long game. You don't have a straight left. Like your jab wasn't really where it needed to be. And so those last four rounds were Teo having fun. They were just Teo letting Josh know that there's another level. He showed that Years spent in, in those New York gyms, in the Bronx, in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, in Queens, Staten Island. All those sweaty gyms, and they're not the greatest gyms. It's not like BXR here or Third Space. It's not nice and airy like Rathbones and Camden. You know, we were quite fruity gyms here. It's dank, and it's sweaty, and it's nasty, and it's unpleasant. And in some cases, it's unfriendly until you prove yourself. And that's the school Teofimo Lopez came from, where he saw everything. And so he knows what to do in these situations. He knows how to create clear water between himself and Josh Taylor. And that's what he does. And you can see Josh doesn't want to be there. And that last round where Josh was kind of there for the taking, just go back and look at the highlights. 
The number of times you saw Josh Taylor's head snap back, his neck stretched, his face twisted around with, with beautiful, precise shots from Teofimo Lopez. We don't, know, we don't see that happen to Josh Taylor. I know people talk about Cattrall, but who cares about Cattrall? I'm going to say that again. Who cares about Jack Cattrall? If everybody who talks about Jack Cattrall bought a ticket to watch Jack Cattrall, he wouldn't need to sign to Matchroom. If everybody who loves Jack Cattrall supposedly watched Jack Cattrall fight, Eddie Hearn would have increased his subscriber count significantly. Jack Cattrall is just something people say to sound right. Ah, Jack Cattrall was robbed. Jack Cattrall was robbed. It's an injustice. He wasn't. He wasn't robbed. And here's a good contrast with that fight. Josh Taylor was able to grind his way back into that fight. And he wasn't able to do that here because Teofimo Lopez is a far better boxer than Jack Cattrall. A far smarter mind than Jack Cattrall. Jack Cattrall is just an incredibly negative guy. A nasty guy to watch. Unpleasant on the eye. Not enjoyable to watch at all. That's my opinion on it. It's not enjoyable to watch at all. I don't even think it's that much sophistication. It's just I'm going to be an awkward southpaw that doesn't commit to anything, but I might catch you coming in. Great. Who wants that? Who wants that on their pay-per-view platform? Nobody. So hopefully the, the Cattrall-Taylor stuff stops because nobody cares. And I mean, you can care on Twitter. That's not the real world. You wouldn't pay pay-per-view money for Taylor versus Cattrall. Nobody would. So let's just put that to bed now. So end of the fight. You see that you see Josh looks looks deflated. Looks like he doesn't want to be there. Sorry, my recording got disrupted by a phone call, so I've lost my train of thought. But we're definitely talking about the, the end of the fight and the aftermath. Thought Josh Taylor was as classy as we've ever seen him in defeat. Well, he's never been defeated, actually, so... Understandable. Don't say the Cattrall thing. No, 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 no. Cougs, no, no. You're trying to get a reaction from me, Cougs? No. Um, no, no, let's not say that. But he was magnanimous. He was classy. I thought Joe McAnally was classy in the aftermath. I think I'm becoming a fan of Joe McAnally as a character because he's, he's never too high and he's never too low. Everything he says is kind of on the money. And so I think I said this after the Liam Smith thing. I'd like to see him have a good run as a trainer now. Let's see what Joe McAnally can do. I'd like to see what he can do with, with guys he takes from zero. Let's see how talented he is. Because he's, he's a good character to have. I like how he thinks about boxing. I like how he speaks about it. I think he's class. Um, and, you know, I maintain that. I'm not a guy that ever talks about, oh, you should just move trainers. If Josh is happy with Joe, good. Long may that continue. Um, I think in the aftermath, Josh has also talked about weight being an issue. He felt his legs were gone and stuff like this. That he should move to 147. There are some real monsters at 147. Those guys like Jerome Ennis are basically better versions of Teofimo, stronger versions of Teofimo, Virgil Ortiz, all these sorts of guys. Now, I'll even say even Conor Ben might be a nightmare for Josh Taylor just from a physicality perspective. So be careful what you wish for at 147. And I was a guy that said after he beat Progre, or was it Ramirez? I can't even remember anymore. When he became undisputed, there was Ramirez. When he became undisputed, I was of the view that he would give Terence Crawford trouble. I thought he had elements in him that would give Crawford trouble. More so in the Shane McGuigan era, because I know how Shane likes to deconstruct opponents. 
I don't think that now, and I'm allowed to change my mind based on new information. That's how intelligence works. But I do see him having some competitive fights at 147, and maybe that's all he wants now. Or do you wait around at 140 for guys like Haney and Ryan Garcia? They're a different era to Josh. I think Josh, Josh has got to chase his era now. That kind of Errol Spence era. That, that's where he should be now. Maybe he does jump in and fight Danny Garcia and hopes that Danny's relative inactivity, both from a punch-output perspective, but just overall in-ring activity, plays in his favour. But Danny's, Danny's an elite counter-puncher. That's why he doesn't throw that many shots. So that will also be hard for Josh. Danny can read southpaws pretty well. And Danny can dog it out when he has to. So that's a hard fight. What does Josh do? He's big enough that he could just go to 154 if he wanted to. And I don't know if that would unleash more power. No idea. We know that Tommy Hearns went from 147 to 154. And that was probably when he was at his most murderous. When he was hitting guards at 154. So there are all of these sorts of options for him. But you look at Teo and you're like, Teo, stay at 114. Just wait for everyone to come up. Fight Haney. Fight Tank. Let Shakur come up eventually. Fight him too. Fight everyone. Fight Garcia. Fight Broner. The world's his oyster. But he's got so much in his personal life to sort out. Who's going to promote him? Who's going to do all of this stuff? Hopefully that gets sorted out because... I think what we're learning about Teofimo Lopez is he's a big game player. Maybe he's going to struggle fighting the, the Miguel Vasquez's of this world or the kind of lower order people he might have to, like a Jack Cattrall who no one really cares about. Maybe he'll struggle at that level, but you put him in against guys that are meant to hurt him and then he might come alive and do his best work. But I come back to what I said right at the beginning. If we want the top guys to fight each other, we have to accept that you're going to see some bad shit from one guy and some good shit from another guy. And we have to be okay still respecting both men the same way after the fight. This disrespect that's being thrown at Josh Taylor needs to stop. It's not grown man behavior. It's just not. If your mate got, cheat, got caught cheating by his girlfriend, would you disown him? No, you wouldn't. You'd have a little chuckle like, <laughs> man, lucky, but you're still mates. There's still that respect because that's your friend. We also need to stop this idea that, you know, Teofimo Lopez has a career best win, right? I think that's a career best win because he gave up a lot of advantages in terms of size, height, reach, you know, experience at that level. Yeah, he gave up a lot. And people immediately go, yeah, Haney beats him. Or Tank beats him. Shut the fuck up. Let the man enjoy his victory. And remember, they have to go to Teofimo Lopez. If Teo stays 140, Devin has to go to him. Tank has to go to him. O'Hara Davis has to go to him. Shakur has to go to him. All roads lead to Teo. Prograde goes to him. Ramirez goes to him. Hopefully he can cope with that burden. Because if he can, we're in for some entertaining fights and some entertaining build-ups. And the last point I want to make is, this is the importance of having the right trainer. If you look at it, Teo Sr., Angel Garcia, um... 
I'm sure I'm forgetting other people. Even, even Dennis Douglin and his mum. Um, Roberto Guerrero Sr. All of these guys are fathers who train their kids. I won't include Virgil Hunter because he's a godfather. All of these guys are guys who trained kids in their charge from very, very young and produced elite fighters without necessarily being storied themselves. So it goes to show that give a man enough time, he can produce quality if he understands what quality is. And it proves that boxing is mostly mental. And if you can hit the right psychological triggers, which a father should be able to do, you can get a performance. I love the fact that Teo Sr. had the humility to admit he'd got some things wrong, where he had, and I could relate to this, because I went down this rabbit hole when I was younger as a coach, and I thought, if I can get everything reduced down to metrics, I can't possibly lose. But you forget the genius that's within all fighters. And sometimes you've got to let them fight how they want to fight. And once they find their in-ring voice, your job is just to make that better. Let them do more of what they're good at. That's what I've had to learn. So my coaching philosophy used to be, you do this this many times, this happens. And I think there's a place for that, but it's subordinate to who are you in the ring? When do you do your best work? Let's build on that. That's going to be key. And I think TLC, you admitted he had to get his son back to using his eyes, using his instincts, yeah, relying on all those years of being in the ring against the elite. I like that humility, and it just goes to show you, give a man enough time, he'll train a champion, and all of you guys that keep saying people need to change trainers, they don't. They need to change themselves. Because the trainer is such a small part that you're not going to fix the problem. But, as I said, Good fight. I think that fight was good for boxing. And at a time where we keep complaining about other fights not happening, let's congratulate those guys for actually stepping in the ring and getting it done. Now I get to the part of the, the episode I'm going to enjoy the most. So Saturday night I got to watch a good friend of mine, Ellie Scottney, become world champion. Um, it's quite emotional because like, I've known Elle, I've known Elle a long time. I've known of Ellie Scottney even longer. Like, I remember the guys at the Lynn talking about this kid they've got, Ellie Scottney. It's like, oh, mate, she's, she's, she's mustard, mate. She's mustard. And you know, when you, I'm, I'm so jaded by hearing that. I was like, yeah, okay, if you say so. And then you'd see her out on the circuit, club shows and stuff. You just see her and you're like, oh, okay. Oh, she's good. Like, her... Her junior run, so we're going to like 2015. Like she had a run from 2015 to 2017 where I just thought she was doing stuff no one else was doing. And if I go back to, there's an episode I did for the New Age podcast. And this has got to be 2016, later on in the year. And so this was just after Katie Taylor turned over. And I said, we're not going to be able to judge women's boxing until we see what kids like Ellie Scottney do. I was adamant about that. And I said, Ellie Scottney and her generation, and we'll come on to them, but her generation includes your people like Karis Artingstall, Shona Whitwell, 
Ebony Jones, uh, Demi Jade, it may even, uh, there's a few others, there's a George O'Connor, I can't remember, but there's, there's a few of them that came up as a group, all roughly the same age within a year or so, and they've all come up together, and I said, it's going to be this generation that tell us how healthy women's boxing is and how viable it is, because they're the first group you can say were inspired by the 2012 lot. So these are the spawn, these are the children of the Natasha Jonases, the Savannah Marshalls, the Amanda Coulsons, who rarely gets talked about, Rebecca Donnelly, never really gets talked about, uh, Asha Bahari, who never gets talked about. There's a load of those kind of ladies that were around the circuit and were vying for GB selection in 2008 to 2012. Nina Smith, who's now Nina Hughes, was part of that cohort as well. But these were the ones who came up as juniors and school schoolgirls, and they came up level after level. And Ellie Scottney just had that incredible run where she was just, yeah. I think she, 2015, she had a hard time. I think she boxed at 60 and lost to Shona Whitwell, which is going to happen. Shona's just huge at 60 kilos. I can't believe Shona's still boxing at 60 kilos now. And then once she found her natural weight, um, and I think her best year as an amateur in terms of like the British circuit was probably 2017. And I mean, when you've got wins over Karis Artinsall in the semi and Nina Hughes in the final the other way around, I can't remember. When you've got those sorts of wins, that's an impressive body count. And that's what Ellie's got. So you look at Ellie now, but her whole run, career run, she's been in the ring with and beaten people who are now world champions. That tells you that there's something about her. So people will say you're just saying that because she's your mate and you're biased. No, it's not so much that. Because you've got to remember, Ellie's a lot younger than me. I don't have to be that biased. But she was always a good barometer because that was always going to be the criteria. Because if you look at it ideologically, you've got the kind of Ebony Bridges side of things, which is brown panties, only fans, jump on Twitter, have some banter, yada, 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 which I'm not saying is wrong, by the way. I'm just saying that's one way of doing it. You know, get the attention through, you know, appealing to men's carnal desires. Then there's the other side, which is appeal to boxing fans by basically being a damn good fighter and an exciting fighter. And that's what Ellie Scottney is. And I've lived through text messages with people like, yeah, I don't think Ellie Scottney's that good. And I said, no, keep believing, because she is. Yeah, she just had to adjust to the pro thing. I don't understand why, and I've, I should ask her this, but she, she there was an adjustment period for her where she had to, figure out what she what needs to be done in the pros. And then once the penny dropped, she's been incredible ever since. And I'm really, really happy for her, man. Those, those 10 rounds were exactly what she needed. I thought the fight was, was a great showcase for Ellie Scottney. Um, I feel for Shanika Johnson, because everything I've heard about her points to her being a really lovely lady. Um, grafted her way up the ladder you know, through the whole Australian system and is a contemporary of Sky Nicholson, obviously. And I heard a lot of good things, but I don't know if it was the occasion, I don't know if it was the opponent, but she never really... 
She never really threw shots in anger. So if you look at Ellie's performance, um, it breaks into three clear phases, right, in the ten rounds. So there's rounds one to four, and you're watching it going, she's very left-hand happy. A bit like Josh Taylor, we just talked about this. So, you know, I don't want to break it down too much because I might be giving L's opponents some free games. So I don't want to do that too often. But L was able to do the same things on repeat. Jab, dip, left to the body, left to the head. Jab, dip, left to the head. Jab, dip, left to the head, left uppercut, move off. Double jab, left uppercut. She could do that at will. And Johnson made no adjustments to it. So for four rounds, Ellie just hoovered up rounds with one hand. And then you saw Shanika Johnson go, right, I'm going to have to do something here. And just start to let her hands go. And so at that point, when she started to let her hands go, then Ellie goes, I'm going to show you I'm a two-handed fighter. And she started to let shots go. Right hands over the top, right hands under the jab. She started to let, the, started to let those shots go. And that kind of broke Shanika Johnson. Then when the, the head clash happened, in, I think it was round six, which caused the, the cut, you saw that go hard for her because you said, oh, God, this isn't looking good. But what Elle was able to do from rounds five to about round seven, eight, was use that two-handed attack. So she could fl- she just shoot the jab in, tap to the, right, to the right side with the right hand or tap to Shanika's left with the right hand, to get her attention on that side, then boom, the left hook. And then when Shanika Johnson goes, I'm not going to fall for that again, the right hand got heavy and came over the top. So it was almost like this state of perpetual terror. And when I was watching it, because I hadn't really studied Shanika's story until, you know, until I started recording this, and I was looking, I was like, it looked like Elle was boxing on raw, not, not raw talent, but definitely on instinct. L was boxing like someone who's done this their whole life. Shanika Johnson wasn't, which is a surprise considering she's boxing. She was 13. So where, where were her boxing instincts? And this is what I mean. Some people are corner-to-corner boxers. Some people aren't. But there's nothing worse than being a corner-to-corner boxer and not applying what you're being told in the corner. And Shanika Johnson did none of that. So that gave, um, so that gave Ellie Scottley the opportunity to do what she wanted. Some really good decision-making, some good positions Elle took up. Um, creative in how she set things up, the variety. She doesn't run out of ideas, which I think is good. And then the last couple of rounds, she just dogged it out, knowing that she was going to win anyway. And I just, yeah, I was happy for her, because I remember that's the young lady I'd be sat next to just talking boxing while watching Harry Mullins spa. And she was just, even then, you're like, I just wanted to be good. I think she did about 18, 19. I thought, I just wanted to be good. And then, you know, the GB thing. I know the GB thing was hard for her. She's never come out publicly. But I've heard from people behind the scenes. It was hard for her because people were putting pressure on not just her. And this is why a lot of the women leave GB. You get put under severe pressure to make certain weight classes. There's a lot of pressure for you to gain weight, lose weight, that sort of thing. And I don't necessarily think that's the right thing. I think we need to be a bit more cognizant of not encouraging eating disorders amongst our men or women. So I think, yeah, I think GB was a toxic place for many women. No one's ever told us truthfully what happened to Natasha Gale. Yeah. 
Natasha Gale locked in at 75 until she lost to Lauren Price, and then all of a sudden, just gone. Not, 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 oh, I left GB and carried on boxing. Gone. And that's never been spoken about. A load of stuff has never been spoken about with GB. I don't know if they have to sign NDAs, whatever it is, but it's not a good place. And to see Elle now become a world champion, I think is good. And the great thing is she's in a weight class where there are fights. She's not even ranked number one in the world. So there are a few Mexicans, some Argentinians, and Zimbabwean and stuff she could just mix it up with. Um, I'm sure at some point we'll be talking unifications or people moving up from 118 to fight her, people moving down from 126, her moving up to 126, I don't know. But I think she's got a good situation there with Shane. Shane will understand what Elle needs, what, you know what I mean? And it's the kind of culture and environment I think Elle thrives in. So it's it's witty, it's smart, it's it's multi-dimensional. I think she'll like that. But I'm so, so, so happy for her because we had the whole ruckus around Shane can't be in the same building as Chantal Cameron. And, and I know how deflated Elle, Elle was when that happened. She was like, oh, God. She thought a chance might have gone. And so credit to Eddie Hearn because he made the fight happen. Maybe not on the same stage, but the belt's the belt. And that was the important thing. The important thing was for her to get that world championship because remember... Ellie Scottney is someone who is steeped in boxing. She has been following this, studying this. She goes back in the archives. So for her, that world championship has meaning. It has meaning. She will know the corresponding men's champions. and She'll know those going back ages. So she'll know that one day, if she plays it right, she can go into that Hall of Fame and she'll be around her heroes. That's how she thinks. I want to be a world champion. I want to defend. I want to unify. I want to go up. I want to show I can do it all. And then I want to be in the Hall of Fame. This is why everyone should get behind Ellie Scottney because deep down, she's a hardcore. She's a hardcore with the world title. So she's just like one of you guys. I'm not a hardcore, obviously. I'm as fucking casual as they come. But I am proud of her. I'm happy. I'm proud. Like that's that that's like one of ours winning a world title. That's for me the same emotion that when Dan wins a world title, when Dan Aziz wins a world title, that's how I feel. When Denzel wins a world title, that's how I feel. Why isn't Janebeck what why doesn't Janebeck want the rematch? That's the question. Why doesn't Janebeck want the rematch with Denzel? Give Denzel a twelve week camp. See if we don't knock out Janebeck. Yeah, and I've said it today. If Denzel gets a 12-week camp, he knocks out Janibek. But he has, to, he has to listen to me this time, unlike last time, because he'd have done a lot better if he'd listened to me. But congratulations to Ellie Scottney, um, another world title to South London. Hopefully that's an inspiration for more of our South London fighters to, to push, you know, Isaac, Dan Aziz, Denzel, Craig Richards. Yeah, the list goes on and on and on and on. Side note, where is Ted Cheeseman? He kind of retired already. I mean, can we get Ted back, please? I'm just going to disrupt quickly because Eubank is on one on Talk Sport. In the second fight I had with him, he beat me. Almost to death. I nearly died that night, but how can I talk about me when he had six brain operations 
in the in the space of uh, uh, twelve hours. Of course. The, the the point I'm making to you is this: How come Michael Watson isn't getting these plaudits? It shouldn't be Nigel Ben. I don't mind that he's getting it, but let's respect Michael Watson because he put in a performance of which no one has seen in the British ring. We're going to take a very short break. We're back after this. So the reason I just jumped to that was, and sorry I, I wasn't able to, to, to clip it in, but Chris Senior was, was put on the spot. Like, and, you know, Chris had always been careful in the media to to construct any opinion of his son in the context of he's a warrior, he's on his way. And so they replayed a clip of Simon Jordan calling him a charlatan. And Eubank Sr. quite honestly said, I can't pretend otherwise. Which is crazy, right? I don't know what the rift is between him and his son. I don't know if it's grieving over Seb's passing. I don't know what it is, but this is becoming quite an interesting subplot in the career of Chris Eubank Jr., but knowing him, he probably wouldn't respond to, to the things his dad's saying. But this is uncanny. Because if you're, if you're, don't come into this business otherwise. That's why these fighters shouldn't be listening to these guys who are doing it for just money. Mm. And uh, social media, uh, look at me, I'm a trainer. No, what don't come into What this. defines legacy for you? Honest, you have to be honest. You have to be honest. When you're having it kicked out of you, when you feel you're losing your life, you've got to stay there and take that beating. Okay, that's, that's the fighters I will produce. Does Anthony These, Joshua have a legacy? Carl Froch says he doesn't have one. I'm not, I'm not going to get into that, okay? Okay, okay, no, I will get into that. <laughs> okay, so if at 13 fights, his promoter puts him into a world championship fight, he's destroyed him, he's, he's destroyed him because he hasn't learned the trade. And you're going to come up against fighters like Ruiz, who's going to expose you. That's the fault of the promoter who is fast-tracking the fighter for money. Looking at his muscles, not at the content of his abilities. Wow. Come on, we only have a few minutes. <laughs> what was the best day of your life? The 5th of June 2022, Queen Elizabeth II, my hero. The person who oh, I God. looked up to because my mother left. She was my beacon. So I pretended, I pretended that... I suppose I would have to behave like Prince Philip to actually get a woman like this. I've got to be well-mannered. I can't use bad language. I've got to dress correctly. It seems as though I've followed all of these precepts and everyone thinks I'm weird. And I was following the Queen, which is what everybody else was supposed to be following. In 2003-2004, I did an anti-war protest saying, Blair, don't send, a, your, don't send our young prince to your catastrophic illegal war to make her look plausible. That was 2004. She must have been a fan from that particular day because she's the one who put me at the front of that bus, the bus of four treasures, the four buses of national treasures, sorry, which is uh, another word, a.k.a. the four buses of superstars. I was at the front. Give this the man a knife, please. wasn't invited. David Beckham wasn't invited. David Beckham. Hey, he's been, he's been a hero for us all. He wasn't invited. Why? So the point I'm making to you, if I'm front and centre on that bus, the best day of my life, only the queen, only the person who owns the firm could have put me there. Now that should be looked into. Mm -hmm. I, and, the, and the credit I give is not to me. I give it to Rosa Parks, who was at the back of the bus back in the... Civil rights in the 60s, yeah. Yes. All right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that was the best day of my life. Now, again... It wasn't actually Rosa Parks. This, they put Rosa Parks is, in there because she was a lighter-skinned woman. Never, it will... 
Queen Elizabeth II held herself in perfect form for 70 years. 70 years. And when I dress like the Englishman and speak the king's English, my English, when I behave like, when I show chivalry, when I'm decent in the face of bigotry and racism, they say I'm weird. I'm only following what the queen, my queen, told me to do. And my parents are from Jamaica. And if I've done it, and it's got me all these wins, and it's got me to the front of the bus. Chris Eubank Sr. is a compelling man. Um, you may not always agree with him, but this man wears his heart on his sleeve. He's what boxing needs right now. We need someone who's going to be straight talking. We need someone who is going to stand up for the core values of boxing, which are, to be honest, be a tough man, be a hard man, be an honest man, or woman, in fact. Have courage. P put yourself on the line. Don't look for the easy way out. And he's right. Some of these trainers looked for the easy way out. He's a listener. Everyone's yes. a listener of TalkSport. Yes, and so they should be. If he's listening, and I'm sure he is, what do you want to say to him? Because I'm saddened by this letter that he wrote you. And you want to be involved. I know you do. Hold on. What do you want hold, to say to on. Chris Jr.? Use that microphone to impart your message. Listen. Humility means, means you retract the letter. And before you retract it, you show the public. The truth will set you free. I did not go missing. You sent me away. Now, when you sent me away, you gave me the ability to go and live my own life. I've been doing things, you know, one of these things I've actually tried to get across to Nigel Bennon audiences, I say to them, I don't want to talk about what I did in the 1990s. You should find out what I used it to get to. I can, I can teach you how to win, how to get what you want in life by being focused, by not, just don't look outside of yourself. Just all you've got to do is believe in yourself. This is that simple. And anything you choose, and I've chosen, I've chosen the vocations. Anything you choose, you can achieve in. That's what I do. Why, why can't people see this? How my son couldn't see it. Yes, my son, let me tell you. Yes, I would love that because he's my son. I, you know, I've, I can show you pictures when he was a baby on me. The, the point is this. Of course, I will accept anything he asks me. But you have to have the humility to ask. I get it. That's right. I get Dad it. is no longer chasing you. Chris, um, the messages are too many to go into at this stage. We're out of time. Um, I want to thank you. Wow. Um... Well, man. So I'm going to have to go back and revisit some of that interview. But I think from what, what I'm gathering now is Eubank Sr. doesn't want to play second fiddle to his son. I think there's a subtext there, which is he hasn't become the man I thought he would. But sadly, that's being played out in public instead of in private. But, you know, Eubank, I think when you catch up with all of it, touches on some interesting topics. There's some allegations around fighters injecting themselves. No names were mentioned, luckily, but you know, I think you can figure out who he means by that. There are all sorts of things affecting that, but let Eubank Senior loose on the sport. Let him call out the fakers and the blaggers. Because remember, here's, here's a guy who built the foundations everything we do now was based on. We wouldn't have pay-per-view here if it wasn't for the Eubanks, the Bens, the Watsons. We wouldn't have that. We, we wouldn't have stadium fights in the way we talk of them now. We wouldn't have these big events. Not saying they didn't happen before, but to make them a, a commercial staple of boxing. 
You know, that's down to Eubank. Eddie Hearn wouldn't have gone to that school without Eubank. He wouldn't have been able to allegedly harass Jody Martian and many others if it wasn't for Eubank. That's a man who owes, who owes the sport nothing, but the sport owes him so much. And God, I'm just aware that I've been waffling for ages. I want to close up by talking about a couple of things. One of them is Yusuf Kamari. Yusuf Kamari, super featherweight, one of the most exciting fighters in this country. Yeah, will give you a war anytime you want it. Um, he, has he got all the finesse in the world? No, but as fans, we want to see guys who who give their all. Right? He's a warrior. He's a definition of a warrior. He's a tough man. He's a hard man, but he's a good man. He's a smart man. He's the, I've said it before. He's a guy that you could put a franchise around, and he wouldn't drop the ball. Yeah. He's got that, that quality to him. I think in many ways he's a class act that's been mistreated by boxing. How the hell Sky haven't signed him considering the dross they have top to toe in their roster? Like It's the home of British mediocrity right now and you're telling me Yusuf Kamari can't get a slot, Ben Shalom. That's insane. With the number of shows that are done out of Wembley, Yusuf Kamari is the local hero that Sky should have been building those Wembley shows around. Instead, it's left to Eddie Hearn to put him in with Reese Bellotti. And I think Yusuf, probably, if they fight ten times, they each win five times. But I think Yusuf was just so unlucky in his career. Deserves a lot better. Um, but I'm also one of those guys that says it's on him to, to change the direction of his career. I still think he can, but he has to take steps to, to address it. Because I'm a big fan. I, I think in terms of being an all-round kind of boxing persona and brand, I think he's got it nailed. But it's on him now. But I wish him all the best. I'm a big Yusuf Kamari fan. Will always be a big Yusuf Kamari fan. Also want to shout out the Capital Box Cup. So in London we had a Box Cup not long ago for the novices essentially. Um, guys with fewer than 20 bouts was the focus of the event. Um, did really well here. Islington did good numbers there. So congratulations to them. And Floyd Mayweather, John Gotti. In a weekend of really, really good boxing, the sad irony is that Mayweather takes the headlines again with the fight and the brawl around, uh, I think he fought John Gotti III. I find it really funny that John Gotti III tried to bully Mayweather, took one chopping right hand. It wasn't even a heavy shot. And that was him done. But the upside of that was... Sean Earl's got to do a corner on another Mayweather show, so credit to him that he's building his profile. I, I wish people would seek him out too. I see a lot of other chancers, blaggers, um, so in some cases clowns, yeah, training fighters, genuine clowns, guys who you see on Instagram from one place to the other, but we don't know who you are. You've just kind of been floating around in the corner of pictures, but no one knows who you are. And here you are talking about your televised trainer. Where Sean Earls is grinding every day. Where's his luck? This is a sad state that boxing's in at the moment. But Mayweather once again hogs the headlines. On one hand it's frustrating, but on the other hand it says when you build a brand strong enough you should be allowed to monetize it till there's nothing left. Then how long this can carry on for. But you can see the decline in Mayweather. So hopefully there are not too many more of these because it's getting harder and harder to watch. And on that note, I'll say have a good day, guys. And as always, if you enjoy the content, like it, share it, let's discuss it. 
you know, let's keep building the platform and the love's always appreciated. Take care.